Shorenstein also is a big holder of office buildings in San Francisco. It's not like this is their only San Francisco property. So they're dealing with this on the one side, but they also have a number of other buildings where, you know, they're facing the same problems in those buildings that all the other downtown landlords are facing. So it's not like this is the only kind of fire they're trying to put out right now. There's also half a dozen buildings they own downtown. And, you know, our San Francisco downtown right now is seeing its highest ever vacancy numbers, especially financial district, Soma, a lot of the neighborhoods where Shorenstein owns these big buildings. And, you know, so it just, this is all part of a bigger picture of what's going on in San Francisco in office. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh, and today we are peeling back the veil on Twitter, or the Twitter building, at least. Yeah, so over the past few weeks, we've touched on the layoffs that have ensued and the back rant that has accrued since Elon Musk took over Twitter. The weirdest news for me to come out of that um, was the workers that were sleeping in their offices, but I know that's just one part of the bigger picture. Yeah, that definitely made headlines. So the financial story is in December, we found out Musk stopped paying rent at Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco. Then this week, the company's landlord, Shorenstein Properties and J.P. Morgan, sued for the arrears, which have topped $3 million as of January. And amid all of that, Shorenstein is struggling to refinance a $400 million loan on the property. I also saw the building had until January to work something out with its lender, right? Yeah, January 9th to be specific. So I chatted with Emily Landis, who is our San Francisco reporter who broke the story about how Shorenstein tried to deal with that debt and the fate of the building under Musk's watch. We're also looking at what Twitter's troubles mean for the rest of the San Francisco office market. It's a city that has really struggled to come back from the first pandemic shutdowns, and Twitter's chaos really isn't helping the situation. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, but first, let's do some news from last week. You covered some juicy new renter protections approved in LA. Can you break down those changes a little bit? Yeah, so LA recently enacted a few new renter protections. First, the city introduced just cause evictions for all types of multifamily rental housing. So that means landlords have to have a reason for pursuing eviction. They can't evict someone just because they want to jack up their rents or because they don't like them. Previously, only about 76% of the city's rental housing stock was subject to just cause eviction requirements. So it's a big expansion. For example, just calls never applied to single family rental homes. Mm, Okay. So what are the reasons you can evict someone? So there are 14 in total, but the most common circumstances, I guess, would be if the tenant hasn't paid their rent or is, quote, a nuisance to the property, causing damage or something. Landlords can also evict tenants if they or their spouse or certain family members intend to reoccupy the property, as in, you know, they want to move back into the home full time. Or they can evict if they are looking to demolish the building or convert it into some sort of non-residential use. Okay, got it. But there was a little bit more. The city of L.A. also introduced moving assistance fees for evicted tenants. So in some cases, landlords will have to pay moving expenses to anyone they decide to evict. It ranges from about $9,200 to more than $20,000, 
but that really depends on how long the tenant has lived in the property for and if they're older than 62 or disabled. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I ask because I feel like there's tie-ins to what's happening in LA to what's been going on in New York and then some um, developments federally. So looking at New York first, last year we had the opportunity to implement Good Cause and we didn't. Good Cause is similar to Just Cause, just a different aim. We're not sure in 2023 if the proposal will have any more momentum, but it's definitely still on the table. Tenants are rallying for it. Landlords don't want it. Um, We do know that it did not make Governor Hochul's State of the State address. And then last week, we saw that President Biden came out with a, quote, blueprint for a renter's bill of rights. Basically, the federal government is acknowledging that rents have risen faster than people's incomes and tenants need additional protections. But Biden also said it's mainly up to the state and local governments to implement any extra protections. He made the point that, you know, they looked at federal rent control, I guess, but said it would conflict with legislation in like New York or uh, in California. So we'll have to see if that top down nudge actually spurs any lower level action. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking it could be a good topic for an upcoming episode. Mm, Yeah. And speaking of New York tenants, I saw that the state actually went in the opposite direction and did away with a different tenant protection last week. Yeah, sort of. Um, So the state's Emergency Rental Assistance Program, or ERAP, which New York has, every other state had a similar version of it, it finally closed last week to new applicants. And that was a big deal for landlords because... The program had offered protection from eviction after the eviction moratorium ended last January, but that protection was supposed to come while tenants were waiting for more money to hit the portal to pay back the rent they owed. Um, The catch is that the portal has basically been out of cash since late 2021. So the program was protecting tenants, but there was little guarantee that landlords were going to be paid back. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there are still tens of thousands of applications pending, and landlords still cannot evict the tenants who got an application in before the portal closed. So at this point, some of them, you know, they've been without rent for three years, they have mortgages to pay, and they're looking to sue. And in more crime news, real estate tycoon Todd Crisley and his wife Julie were sentenced to 12 and 7 years in jail, respectively, for fraud and tax evasion. Mm. Can you remind me, those are reality TV people, right? Yeah, they're on a show called Crisley Knows Best. And as for the crimes, it turns out the couple defrauded community banks out of more than $30 million in loans and didn't pay their taxes for years. Mm. That is a cautionary tale as we enter tax season. Definitely. Everyone submit everything you have. (laughs) Last week, we also learned that Rupert Murdoch is considering a real estate-related sale, but it's not a property he's looking to unload. It's a company. Murdoch's News Corp is in talks to sell Move Inc. That's the parent company of listing site Realtor.com. And CoStar is the firm looking to buy Move, which would give it an even bigger hold on the residential space. CoStar already owns Apartments.com and HomeSnap. And as far as prospective deals for last week, we'll have to head down to Florida, where Brookfield Properties is hoping to offload Boca Raton's Misner Park. It's a massive mixed-use project. Apparently, the listing doesn't have a price attached to it, right? Yeah, that's what we reported. But 
An investor who had asked about the listing said offers have been submitted for as much as $290 million. And just for context on the size of the property, it includes a 272-unit apartment building, 270,000 square feet of retail, an office tower that's nearly the same size, and like 2,400 parking spaces. And before we jump into my interview with Emily, there's one more story that I want to squeeze in. Despite the troubles with the office market, the biggest loan in New York last month was actually for a brand new office project. Wells Fargo financed the 1.4 million square foot building that is set to rise in Flatiron with a $575 million construction loan. The project is 1 Madison Avenue and is set to be built by a joint venture between SL Green, Heinz, and the National Pension Service of Korea. The tower has an estimated $2.3 billion price tag. So a huge, huge development. Yeah. All right. So let's leave those developments in New York's office space and take a look at the turmoil that's brewing in San Francisco's market. So I want to let's first start with what happened last year. So Shorenstein and JP Morgan own what is known as the Twitter building. What exactly happened in the latter half of last year in regards to their financial situation in the building? Well, their loan came due uh, in September and they started working on a workout, sounds like more like in June, you know, kind of knowing that this was coming to fruition. But by January, they and as of as of now, they still have not been able to refinance that loan. And it is for $400 million. So the building that's backing that loan is what we would call the Twitter building because they are 75% of the lease in that building. And some of those leases are up within the next year and some of those leases go out you know, for the next five years. You spoke to someone at TREP about this building specifically and this refinancing that they were trying to get done. What was the issue? Why couldn't they get this deal through? by their maturity date. So one thing that was interesting was that he said, ordinarily, had they started in June, they would have had no problem refinancing before September. Like before the pandemic, that would have been a perfectly reasonable time frame to expect to be able to refinance a loan of this size, given the tenant in the building, given the um, value of San Francisco real estate. So some of those things have changed. Okay. So we have a few things. One is just general headwinds in the mortgage market and the fact that there's just less money out there for these kinds of loans. Number two is that San Francisco itself has become less desirable and office buildings in particular. So that's number three. And then you've got Twitter on top of everything, which has been this, you know, since Elon Musk came in in October, has been kind of this lightning rod of controversy and um, kind of his part of the TREP analysis was that just the amount of headlines that have been on that building cannot be helping them refinance. So banks may not have wanted to go near it. He implied that it might be like a bad career move for the loan officer who might be taking this to a higher wow. person. Like it's that bad. So we had this at the end of last year and a couple weeks after there's a story in the New York Times that says that Twitter has stopped paying some of its rent. Yes. I think it stopped paying rent pretty much universally around the world. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It was, yeah, it was like, no, not just at one office. It's it's all of their offices. 
all of their offices. And this is just like an Elon Musk power move of we're paying too much in rent and we own or we lease all of these spaces. And so these landlords are going to have to negotiate with us if we just stop paying rent. And then a couple of weeks later, a lawsuit comes out. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's been many around the world. I found that the King of England is apparently one of the uh, holders of their London uh, lease. So the King of England is suing them. In San Francisco, they were being sued first for another lease that they had not at their main headquarters. And that one was for $136,000 in uh, missed rent. And we heard nothing from Shorenstein at that point. So this was, just to go back, that 136000 Columbia Property Trust was suing them over that amount, correct? The owner of that building? Yes. Also in San Francisco downtown. And I should also point out, you know, Shorenstein also is a big holder of office buildings in San Francisco. It's not like this is their only San Francisco property. So they're dealing with this on the one side, but they also have a number of other buildings where, you know, they're facing the same problems in those buildings that all the other downtown landlords are facing. So it's not like this is the only kind of fire they're trying to put out right now. There's also half a dozen buildings they own downtown. And, you know, our San Francisco downtown right now is seeing its highest ever vacancy numbers, especially Financial District, Soma, a lot of the neighborhoods where Shorenstein owns these big buildings. And, you know, so it, it just this is all part of a bigger picture of what's going on in San Francisco in office. Elon Musk coming in and not paying rent does not help the situation for Shorenstein. No, it certainly doesn't help the situation. And, you know, he also laid off 50% of his employees. And that kind of kicked off whether or not it was coming anyway. It kind of kicked off a lot of other, you know, not 50%, but 10% people were being let go. You know, we had Meta let go of people, Google let go of people, pr pretty big employers in the Bay Area and takers of office space in San Francisco in particular have also been letting go of a number of their workers, their tech workers. Tech workers are the biggest leaseholders in San Francisco. So all of these things kind of have a cascading effect on what's going on downtown. And part of it is Twitter and specifically what's going on there. And then part of it is more general. We have been working on stories in New York about how financial firms have kind of come in to take up space that has been left vacant by tech companies. But in San Francisco, you don't have that same kind of swath of financial firms to actually take over that space. There are hedge funds and venture funds and things like that. So they have been going for this trophy space. There's been a lot of movement in a lot of that flight to quality that everybody's talking about. We've seen that to the extreme in San Francisco where the rents for trophy buildings now are actually higher than they were before the pandemic. So we're up to $107 a square foot on trophy properties, um, according to some office reports. And it was 105 before the pandemic. But even your class A properties, so that's still like a wonderful building with all kinds of, you know, a newer building and amenities and all kinds of things. Those rents have come down to about 80, low 80s uh, per square foot on average, and they were above 90 before the pandemic. 
Class B buildings are closer to $70. So some of the analysts that I talked to said it's the biggest bifurcation they've ever seen between the very top end of the market and kind of everything else. So some of those hedge funds and family firms and things like that, they're taking that trophy space that what had not been available before. And they're, you know, going to have this primo office space now to kind of show off when people come, when the very high end people come to their office, they're going to have some space to show for it. And they seem to be seeing value in continuing to have office space in San Francisco. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think in LA, we're trying to figure out kind of the same, like what firms are, for a while it was law firms actually that were taking up space that had become vacant. For so long, the office market across the country had really relied on tech companies. So it's really interesting that, you know, now other firms are starting to come in and say, hey, actually, we want the space now. This is our time to take it. And interestingly, when you talk to agents uh, in the commercial market in San Francisco, they're actually hoping on tech to bail them out again, because one of the main things that they're assuming is going to come out of all the layoffs that we've been seeing is new startups. And so they're hoping and kind of banking on, everybody says the market is going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't think anyone feels like this change is going to be coming around the corner, but that in a few years from now, some of the people that are getting laid off from these companies right now may be starting the new, you know, tech unicorn based off the opportunity that they're having to go, maybe go out and do their own thing because they got laid off by one of these big um, tech companies. So they're like, these people may come in and start being big takers of office space, like a, a company we've not heard of yet, maybe the next Google or the next Meta or something like that. And that's the thing that can happen in San Francisco and has happened before. And they're hoping is going to happen again. So I wanted to jump back to Twitter. We've seen lawsuits crop up across the world, like you said, and now Shorenstein, you know, they still haven't managed to score a refi. But they are going after Twitter. Yes. So that just came out this week. They have now missed two months of rent. And for Shorenstein, that means $6.8 million. So they apparently had around $3 million in a reserve. And that covered more or less the first month of missed rent. And then once the second month came in, which would have been December... Now they've filed suit. They're not only asking for the missed rent, but they're also asking Twitter to put $10 million in that reserve account since they've already now drawn down the amount that had been in there and to then, you know, that then they could have that to draw down from presumably again if Twitter refuses to pay or something like there's more kind of like strong man tactics that are going to be coming. They're asking the courts to make Twitter put $10 million into a reserve account so that they basically don't have to sue them every month when millions of dollars don't come in. <laughs> we saw a lot of non, at least in LA, we saw a lot of non-payment suits come out of the pandemic because you couldn't go you know, straight for an eviction, but you could sue over non-payment of rent. But I think what's interesting here is that usually sometimes companies will just leave, right? They'll just exit their leases or traditionally put it up for sublease. And Twitter didn't do that. They just stopped paying rent. Twitter has done a lot of unorthodox things. So yes, Twitter could definitely put their add their sublease to the pile that's there. They've elected not to do that. But they've also elected to do <laughs> some other things that are you know outside the norm of what we've been seeing, including, but not limited to, not paying for janitorial services. They are selling off their furniture 
Right. That's what I was going to bring up is that they're also auctioning off all of their furniture, not just furniture. Like there are TVs, there's coffee machines, there's like in, you know, commercial grade kitchen appliances. The the furniture auction, though, is a weird homage almost to the building's history. Can you talk? You actually alerted me to this. I didn't know what it was before, but can you explain that a little more? Yeah. So for about a century, that building was called the Furniture Exchange Mart. And it was a place that um, it was wholesale furniture sales. And I went there, a longtime San Francisco resident. And I went there uh, when I was able to buy my first uh, home in San Francisco many years ago. And they, at that point, had like one or two days a year that they would be open to the public that you could go and uh, as just a member of the public, go buy your furniture directly from the wholesaler. So my husband and I went, we bought the dining room table that I'm sitting at right now, and uh, we still have it. And uh, so it was funny to me when it became this big, you know, tech center, you know, Twitter building, because I had always thought of it as the furniture mart. In any case, it has come full circle from being the furniture mart to now selling furniture at Twitter. It is as a longtime San Franciscan, a very kind of ironic end to what may be the end of this Twitter building era that it's gone back to being the furniture mart again. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So subscribe now, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're diving into the Fed's upcoming meeting and looking into how it might affect the residential market going forward. Tune in then.